It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Getting around on land using GPS is easy, but the same idea doesn't work under the sea. And there's a lot going on down there, from biological mysteries to burgeoning industries. We take a look at the effort to develop a kind of underwater satnav. And the 1970s were a bountiful time for music in Brazil. But 1972 was a particular year of blossoming. We travel back 50 years to see a creative ferment that's still making its way into popular culture today. First up, though. Sri Lanka is in lockdown. Not the COVID kind. The state of emergency, curfew, army on the streets kind. Protests that started simmering in mid-March have turned violent, deadly. The anti-government anger behind them has a mix of causes. The country is in the grip of an economic crisis not seen since the 1940s. For weeks and weeks, basic supplies like food and cooking gas have been hard to come by. But demonstrators want more than action from the government. They want every member of the storied Rajapaksa family that's in government to go. The most pressure was piled on the prime minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa, as protesters gathered for weeks outside his residence. The violence began when pro-government crowds attacked them. And when, at last, the Prime Minister stepped down this week, that didn't stop the fury. His brother, the President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, or Gota as he's known, has put troops on the street, scooped up emergency powers, and is digging in. It may only be a lull in the violence, the standoff might put an end to decades of the Rajapaksa's political maneuvering. Or it could result in even more repression, even a military takeover to quieten the unrest. I'm in Colombo right now and we're in the middle of a power cut. Nominee Vijadasa writes about Sri Lanka for The Economist. There's a curfew that's been imposed, which uh, was supposed to end much earlier, but it will go on till tomorrow morning now. The roads are quiet, but only because there's... Um, a lot of military checking movement and also, at the moment, some battle tanks moving in. And what do those roads actually look like in the aftermath of these protests? There are still shells of burnt-out vehicles on the roads. Eight people have died. More than 200 have been injured. The numbers are adding up. In terms of the number of properties that have been destroyed, the worst of the violence was the day before night, but even into yesterday, Properties were being set on fire. The suspicion now, of course, is that these are organized gangs because much of the anger that was there on Monday and Tuesday, there's been time for that to fizzle out. 
and uh, the military has also been given orders to shoot on sight because it was uh, really getting out of control. And we heard on the show last month about these protests, but things really seem to have escalated since then. How did this week's wave of violence begin? The protests were peaceful for most part of the past month now and concentrated on a breach front in Colombo. But then they were attacked by the police with tear gas and those images went pretty far and wide. So there was a lot of pent-up anger. And there was one particular protest outside of Colombo in which police used live bullets and one protester was killed. After that, they attacked a student protest at the entrance to parliament. And these are university young graduates who are fighting for their rights. No education, no food. Economy is at a standstill. Then on Monday, the prime minister was under a lot of pressure to resign. Mahindra Rajapaksa, the former president. But there was no sign of him leaving. We've been told for weeks that, okay, he's going. No, he's not going. The president asked him to resign, but he says, no, he didn't ask me to resign. The president hints that he has asked him to resign. None of that was happening. And suddenly when it became very clear that he might be pushed out, he and his supporters brought down hundreds of people in state-sponsored buses from out of Colombo into his official residence. They had a meeting. After that, the police stood by while all these protesters charged into Gota Gogama and caused havoc there. They beat up people. They destroyed all of the tents that had been put up over the one month. And being uh, this day and age with social media, it just went viral. After that, there was a spontaneous eruption of extreme anger, which had been boiling up over one month, encouraged by the attacks that we had seen in previous times by the police and special task forces on protesters. So the embattled prime minister calls in a bunch of supporters, allegedly incites them to sort of counter-attack, but in the end he resigned. How did that come about? When the attack happened on Gota Gogama, which is the main protest site, the violence became so bad and the outcry on social media in every other form of media became so apparent and angry, he resigned because there was just no way he could stay on. He tweeted asking for calm and then he said he's leaving. But the prime minister was trapped inside his official residence for many hours, surrounded by very angry protesters who were setting buses on fire and attacking public property, assaulting people who had come in support of the prime minister. And he had to be evacuated by the military in the middle of the night. But that was what the protesters were looking for, right? Ahinda Rajapaksa, the prime minister, steps down, but the violence then continued. Why is that? Is that not what they wanted? What triggered the violence that followed the attack on Gota Gugama was anger and, I suppose, revenge. I was on the site at the time of uh, the attacks at the official residence of the prime minister. And I saw people uh, pulling out his supporters who had attacked them earlier and surrounding them and beating them up, asking, why did you attack us? We were protesting peacefully. Who told you to come? Even though Mahindra Rajapaksa left, most of the Rajapaksas from what people observe are still working behind the scenes to hang on to power. The protests are very, very ardent. They are very insistent on the Rajapaksas going. Why is it that the protesters are so insistent that all of the Rajapaksas go? So there are several Rajapaksas in power, and that has been the pattern since 2005 when the 
current resigned prime minister was president. His younger brother, Gautabi Rajpaksa, is now the president. Several of his brothers are in very powerful positions. And after he took over, he started off well enough because he was seen as a war hero, very popular among the majority Sinhalese Buddhists. But then COVID hit, tourism was affected, and he was not seen to be taking any action to build up the reserves that were being lost through the loss of tourism. And after he won the election in December 2019, he implemented massive tax cuts. So we had a combination of a huge depletion of revenue combined with no foreign reserves. Then everything snowballed. The fact that there was no revenue, the fact that there was no uh, reserves, the fact that this meant that we couldn't buy fuel or any of the essential supplies that were needed to keep the economy running, all of that got combined with this idea about just how corrupt the entire Rajpaksa family is and how power hungry because so many of them are in authority and it was the president who gave them that authority, the president who gave them those cabinet positions. And so after all of those years in power and consolidating power, now this violence, this chaos, do you think that this will be the end of the Rajapaksa's rule? Well, I can tell you that they are trying every trick in the book to stay on. I don't see the Rajapaksa's going easily. I don't see them having made any sort of genuine effort to leave. And the fact that the president has consolidated his powers by taking over whatever cabinet positions that are available. In addition to that, issuing very draconian regulations under emergency law and also playing ball with the opposition. I can see him putting up a big fight. I can't predict where it will go, but if there is no viable prime ministerial candidate, the danger of him consolidating power through the military is very real. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Nathan, for having me on. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The oceans are filled with a cacophony of natural sounds and a whole lot of man-made ones too. Now, scientists want to add some more, but for good reason. Sounds like this may soon help to reveal what are currently hidden happenings in the sea's depths. We're all familiar with the sonar pings that you hear in submarine movies. And what we're now getting are pongs, which are similar sounds, but much lower frequency. David Hambling writes about science for The Economist. These are being emitted every 12 hours by some boys, which are being used by scientists to provide a novel form of underwater location system. At the moment, they're only based off the east coast of the US. But because the sound carries so well, they've actually got a reach of over a thousand kilometers. So how would that work exactly? 
So by triangulating from several different sources, by calculating how far they are from each one, a receiver can figure out exactly where it is underwater. That's very much the same principle as GPS navigation, except that's for radio signals from satellites, whereas this is sound signals underwater from moored buoys. And how is this any different from GPS then? Because it is sound signals. The problem with GPS is that radio waves don't go underwater. So as soon as you have to navigate underwater, you lose that. And that's been very frustrating for a very long time because there are all sorts of people who would like to be able to locate things underwater. And there's this great system for doing it for any point on the Earth's surface, but it doesn't work underwater. Hence the need for this system using pongs. So why is sound a better bet here? This is because of a particular feature of underwater. Part of it is that, as we all know, sound travels quite well underwater anyway. But something that was discovered around the time of World War II is that the ocean is divided up into layers and sound can be trapped within one layer, very much the same way that a light signal travels along a fibre optic cable. So it's acting as what scientists call the waveguide. The sound will spread out for hundreds of kilometres or in some cases even thousands of kilometres within one very narrow band of ocean. These channels were discovered around the time of the Second World War and saw some use then. But after that, it became top secret because by listening into these sound channels, NATO were able to track the movements of Soviet submarines. And this was one of the biggest secrets of the Cold War, the existence of these sound channels and how they could be used for some 40 years until they were eventually spilled by a Russian spy and they had to switch to another system. So you've described the sort of transmitter end of this with the, the buoys that are anchored at various depths. What about the receivers? Well, getting the receiver down to a practical size was the big challenge. The previous generation of receiver was about the size of a bucket and weighed about 10 kilos. Now, with a lot of ingenious work, they've got it down to about the size of a, a AAA battery. And that means it's small enough so you can actually attach it to quite a wide range of fish. So once this system is, is set up, what do scientists hope to learn? Well, at the moment, you can attach tags to fish, and there are a couple of ways of getting data afterwards. One is you can pay fishermen to return the tags when they retrieve them. The other one are these pop-up tags, which will eject after a period of time and float to the surface and send a signal by satellite. So you can use those to gather some information about what fish have been doing. The problem is because there isn't any underwater GPS, you can't tell where they've gone. And that means there are all sorts of mysterious aspects of fish behaviour that we simply don't have any track on. Whereas being able to locate where they are at any given time means that those tags could record their location as well as other factors. And that could be very important, particularly for some commercially important species like tuna and swordfish. But when you say mysterious aspects, what are we talking about? One of the biggest mysteries is about eels, because for thousands of years, people have wondered where eels came from. Because in Europe, we get a new generation of elvers, which are young eels, every year, and they're coming from somewhere in the Atlantic. But nobody knows exactly where. No one has ever seen eels spawn, and we don't know exactly where their spawning grounds are. Because we don't have any sexually adult eels, it's impossible to breed them in captivity. Whereas if we can actually find that location, that could make a big difference in terms of conservation. Similarly, with things like tuna and swordfish, their movement follows the movement of their prey, and this seems to be related to these things called mesoscale features, 
which are gyres, sort of rotating features of ocean tens of kilometres across. The tuna and swordfish go up and down these gyres on a daily basis, but we can't exactly track where they're going or why. If we can get a location system working, it would be possible to find out where they're going, and that would certainly aid fishermen in catching just the fish they want when they want, and that would make fishing far more efficient and far less wasteful in terms of catching other fish. So this is largely about fishing and conservation then? That's certainly one angle, but there's another angle which is more to do with climate change. Some scientists at a university in Rhode Island are developing these underwater robots, which are called minions because they're small and yellow. And these float up and down in the water column. And they are very cheap. They're equipped with mobile phone cameras. And what they're doing is monitoring what's known as marine snow. That's the flux of particles underwater. It's mainly fish feces and dead plankton. And that gradually sifts down to the bottom of the ocean over a course of many years. Now, tracking the density of that and where it goes is vital for understanding carbon capture in the oceans. And to do that, you will need an underwater locating system for the minions so they can see exactly what is happening where. And if the basis of this whole idea is using sound, I mean, doesn't that add to the existing kind of noise pollution of the ocean that we already know is problematic for some species? Much less than you might expect. The sound output from these boys is about 180 decibels. That's not even as loud as some ship engines. The really worrying sounds underwater are the powerful military sonar. And those come out at about 230 decibels. So that's about 100,000 times louder. So even though, yes, they're creating a little bit of noise, not that much noise, and they could do a great deal of good for the ecology. And insofar as this is an analogue to GPS, that is certainly a kind of technology that has lots of defence applications. Is there a defence angle here too? There is a huge defence angle in that the military have always been interested in an underwater location system, and they spend a vast amount of money on inertial-based systems for tracking where their submarines are, particularly ones carrying nuclear weapons, because in order to hit a target, you have to know where you are exactly in relation to it. But this one is a decidedly non-military project. That said, it is open source, so it could be used by anyone. As with GPS, I think we're going to find that some of the major applications are things that no one's even thought of yet. It's one of these things where if you build it, they will come. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. When I was watching The Worst Person in the World, the Oscar-nominated movie from last year, I was really surprised to hear Waters of March or Aguas de Marzo, a bossa nova song that was written by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Carolina Unzelgi writes about Brazil for The Economist. I discovered that Antonio Carlos Jobim was the second most played songwriter in TV, radio, shows and movies, second only to The Beatles. I think that's a hint on how special were the 70s for Brazilian music, but especially 1972, which is the year that Antonio Carlos Jobim wrote that song. 
Some of the best Brazilian records of all time were released that year. Albums like Acabou Chorari by Novos Baianos, with songs like Preta Pretinha. Enquanto eu corria, assim eu ia me chamar which is a charming two-chord tune that brings together traditional rhythms and also rock influences. Also, there is Clube da Esquina by Milton Nascimento and Lou Borges. There is sounds like Trem Azul, it's a metaphorical ballad that it's on the soundtrack of the HBO series Station Eleven. And at least another dozen classics, like Express 2222 by Gilberto Gil, are celebrating their 50th anniversary too. The 1970s were especially fruitful for Brazilian music. Producers were willing to take risks, so experimental records were out. And that is mainly because a 1967 law allowed record companies to deduct from taxes any expenditure on recordings by national artists. This gave way to a plurality of trends. Traditional ones, the samba, such as the introspective sound of Paulinho da Viola in the 1972 record. It's called Dança da Solidão. And also rock-influenced songs. They were compiled in songs in memorias by Erasmo Carlos, one of the pioneers of Brazilian rock. And brega, a type of romantic music that was considered tacky and can be represented by the record As Sim So Will by Odeide José in 1972. Brazilians were willing to buy all of it. Politics were an ethical imperative for the 1972 generation because it all happened during the military dictatorship. That meant that there were prior censorship for record companies. Artists had to submit their songs to the government before performing them. And an amendment to the Constitution in 1968 paved the way for the government to imprison and force exile upon artists. Caetano Veloso, for example, recorded Transa while stranded in London. And to avoid censors, he steered clear of political lyrics, but these ideas are layered into almost every song of the record. Yet some years of political repression coincided with prosperity uh, that became known as the economic miracle. Um, that's interesting because record labels invested in modern equipment. The songs and the artists of the 1972 generation are still relevant and I think a great example of that is a big concert that took place last month. Artists performed in front of the Congress in a protest against President Jair Bolsonaro's environmental agenda and Caetano Veloso-led movement. Te amo, te amo, Brasilia! He was also side by side with younger artists that were inspired by the hotbed of styles from the time. Because it's so Politically charged, this magical year for music still gives young artists in Brazil an identity and continues to sing to heart 50 years on. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.